Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to All Stats Aren't We, a podcast in which Leeds fans cast their combined eye over goings on at Elland Road, giving scrutiny to the underlying statistics and tactical footings at work at Leeds United. I'm John McKenzie, that we've already had three draws this season, only two more to go till we hit last season's tally of the podcast. All draws, aren't we? And I'm joined by the we're already struggling to get enough people on the podcast of the podcast. They only podcast when they're winning. It's Darren Driver. Darren, how are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm here again to take the shit end of the stick, John. But uh, you know, it's 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 always fine. I always enjoy talking to you about football, and we don't need the rest of them anyway. So yeah, I, how are you, John? Are you are you well this morning? Yeah, I'm doing well. I made the executive decision last night that I was going to. I play football on Friday nights, and I decided that you know what, I was going to go and play football and not worry too much about Leeds United. So I've had a weird experience of this game because I watched the game back after the fact last night and I watched it again this morning I think it's just a general truism that when you watch the game back not live you always think of it as being slightly better than mm. than the general crowd consensus during the game uh, and I can understand that like this because I think the narrative thing is a lot heavier then isn't it sort of like this is where we're at we need to win this game it doesn't happen all of the frustrations boil over whereas I think when you watch it back knowing the score it's slightly different so I listened to the second half on the radio driving back from the from the football but um yeah I I didn't think this was too bad um but we will get into it the the question on everyone's lips here John uh, is how did you play I actually played okay it was a first run out for the for the foreshore shirt um and I I midfield marshaled my team to victory picked up a hat-trick while doing so so you know do you want a game on Saturday <laughs> but thank you for asking. It's a rare, good game for me. So, but let's jump into this this game and, and try and pick some of the meat off the bones. So we'll start off with a game summary, which I've actually found fairly hard to do given various things. But it was a one-one draw against Newcastle United away from home. Felt like the game was hard to summarise in terms of periods. It seemed as though the consensus was that Leeds looked good in the first half and less so in the second, but. It seemed to me that there wasn't a huge amount of difference between the two halves, really. I think we created chances, unsurprisingly, largely in transition in both halves. Um, you were saying, Darren, before we went on air, that you were maybe frustrated that we didn't make more of the the fact that Newcastle got a bit more ragged uh, as the game went on. We didn't seem to capitalise on that. And I do think that in our game so far, we've actually seen Leeds start off fairly positively and then and then sort of fade away a little bit. So no doubt that'll be something that we can when we can talk about. Structurally there was no surprises really. We had picked that there was going to probably be a four four two before the game, that, that Newcastle were probably going to play in a three five two or a um sorry, three four three um or a or a um I guess it as it became like a five two three uh, at times. Um the only really interesting like tactical decision in terms of the lineup was Dallas at right back ahead of Shackleton um, and I say that because 
Shackleton and Roberts were basically our only two potential starting options, and I don't think Roberts was ever going to be a starter in that midfield anyway. So um, that that was the only really interesting thing about the um, about the the lineup. Rodrigo played in the second striker position, which we will go on to talk about. Um, but yeah, it was a fairly messy game. I think neither team really controlled the ball. I think Leeds had the majority of the possession, but it felt as though a lot of that possession was had at the back. Um, we have talked at length on this podcast about controlling the ball in wide areas, uh, but I didn't feel as though we were doing a huge amount of that. And I didn't really feel as though Newcastle felt the need to sit really deep through the whole game either. Um, so again, a sort of case of Leeds not not particularly excelling against a mid, mid-block-ish mid team. Um, although I didn't feel as though that Newcastle were, were necessarily pressing us in wide areas and trying to overload in those wide areas either. Um, Leeds got their goal from probably their least likely chance of the evening, around 13 minutes. Rafinha crossing the ball in and it going through Rodrigo's legs. And Newcastle got their equaliser just before half-time through their least surprising outlet, Alan St. Maximan, who I think was, was a fairly bright spark for them throughout the game, as we, again, suggested would be the case. Although I don't think it necessarily takes a rocket scientist to pick out Newcastle's most attacking player <laughs> at the moment. Um, then beyond that, Leeds brought off Daniel James for Tyler Roberts at 60 minutes, which I think is interesting because we've not really seen Tyler Roberts as a w- wide player before. Um, and then we saw a debut for Crescencio Somerville on for Rafinha, um, which has been the thing that everyone's been clamouring for of late. Um, so we finally got to see that. And then finally Shackleton was brought on to replace the injured Luke Ayling with Calvin Phillips dropping back into the centre-back space. I feel as though we've not really said anything about the game so far. Um because I do think, as we've said, it's, it's a tricky game to, to sort of get anything out of. So let's kick off with the interrogation. Uh, this is the part of the, the show where I usually ask the other guys five questions. But in this case, I will ask Darren five questions. So sorry, <laughs> if, you, sorry if you feel as if I'm putting you under the cosh a little bit here, Darren. But um, let's start off with the, the first question, which is I watched the game after the fact, as I've said, and I was surprised at the assessment that I'd seen on Twitter. Uh, perhaps it serves me right for taking Twitter too seriously, but how did you feel the game was on a rewatch? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, when I watched the game live yesterday, I really enjoyed the first half. I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought both teams, you know, made made chances and stuff. And and I was, and and we we definitely looked like the better team and like we were going to unpick them. And I felt relatively confident, even after um, AS, uh, Alan St. Maximum scored. That we would still go on and win the game if the pa- if the if the game continued in the same pattern and if we continued to sh- show the same sort of attacking uh, I don't know I don't know if quality is quite the right, right word to use but if we continue to make as many chances as we as we did in the first half um, as this and I, and I actually thought we started the second half quite well um, I thought I thought we played well for the first ten or fifteen minutes of the second half and looked like we might still be able to unpick them and and I guess. Um, Live yesterday, I made the mistake of going into the All Stats group chat during the second half, which I didn't do at all during the first half, and uh, and and you know I think I think some of the issues that some of the reading of the game yesterday was was compounded by some of the substitutions, which at the time seemed baffling. Like obviously bringing Somerville off for Rafinha at the time seemed very strange, and it, it come, becomes clear now that, that that happened because it was an injury, um, and. Yeah, I think bringing uh, Roberts on for for Dan James, and as you say, we haven't seen Roberts play uh, as a wide player since since the Championship days. There was a spell in Bielsa's first season when he played wide quite regularly, but we haven't really seen it since then. Was probably a bit of a strange substitution. I thought that was going to be the moment when he would have brought some of Villon if he was going to if he was going to bring him on, and so that kind of sense that that some of the thinking wasn't entirely logical probably compounded some of the some of the live feelings about the game but on the rewatch I, I, yeah I agree with you and I, I don't think it was as as bad as I thought it was last night as as you alluded to earlier I think my my real frustration comes because from maybe 65 65 70 minutes I thought Newcastle looked even worse in defensive transition than they were earlier in the game and that there was space there to be exploited and that if we'd have been able to if we'd have had the composure to pick pick the correct pass at various times uh, or to execute the pass properly uh, which i think was as much as a problem as anything else and i think we we would have been able to would have been able to create more good chances in the last 20 minutes and eventually come to 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 win the game so i think that that that's really where where my continued frustration comes from um, how about you? So you you've watched it what three times now or twice? Just twice, yeah. Yeah, 
so how did you see it john yeah I, I, so i think what's going on at the moment is that there's this sort of mythic idea of how we play last season and what that is is that you know it was those games where we did dominate possession to a certain extent we were able to build up in those wide areas as we've talked about a lot um and and you know we 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 got we created goals that were maybe uh, had a little bit more guile to them but I think that overlooks the fact that there were a lot of games last season that were similar to this and I think so much of this comes down to the fact that we are so dependent on the way that oppositions play um, both stylistically and structurally that that sometimes we do have a game which is just a bit messy and the difference between this game and other games last season is that we took our chances more last season. Well, so for example, I watched the the Wolves game back last from last season, the first Wolves game, because I was interested to see how Rodrigo would play in a four four two, and that game was very similar to to this game in a lot of respects, other than the fact that when Wolves went Wolves went ahead and they had the ability to then sit back and cause problems in that in that structure, um, in a way that I don't think Newcastle were able to. So you know, there's a there's a sense in which Newcastle didn't really sit back because I think they realised that if they did sit back, they they probably wouldn't hold on to a lead. So they just sort of carried on playing at a fairly high high tempo, and so it, it ends up being a raggedy game. They're a team who aren't going to build up from the back really. They're they're going to try and get forward directly and quickly as as quickly as possible too. And so I think as a result of that, it, it you end up with these sorts of messy games where where leads do create chances and the difference between this season and last season is that for some reason at the moment our finishing is just a little bit slow um and i think when you then compound that with the 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 the, the games preceding that the the game last night you you then start sort of write it into this narrative that oh well you know we're never gonna we're never gonna win again or you know we're looking poor in in these certain areas and I think it's just just important to look back at, uh, at maybe other games like that last season and uh, and and remind ourselves that there were some games which we, where we did look pretty raggedy we did look pretty messy and we just we managed to get I mean, we didn't even manage to get the win against Wolves but um, it came that came within the context of we were winning other games at the time and so it wasn't quite so uh, nervy as as it maybe is at the moment yeah I, I agree with everything you've just said but I, but I've always kind of had this idea and I don't know how true it is it might just be because of certain games kind of giving me a perceived outcome bias but but that that we have the potential to look really good against a passive mid block and that's how I saw Newcastle last night is a very passive mid block and I think back to the Aston Villa game last season at, at Villa Park they played in a very passive mid block and we were able to use the ball well we were able to manoeuvre them around well we were able to create good chances and we were able to pick them off and if you even think about it to the extent that in that game Villa's only real threat came from Jack Grealish and if you substitute that for last night for for St Maximin I think I think that actually those are two quite similar games albeit they they played in different formations and some of the tactics are slightly different I'm not saying they're completely interchangeable but that it was a sort of game where, where I would ordinarily have expected us to to be able to kind of use the ball much more effectively than we did last night I think that's the frustration for me yeah I, I mean I don't necessarily disagree with you but I would say that Villa were bombing their fullbacks on whereas Yesterday, Newcastle played it with a back five for long stretches. And again, we've talked at length about, you know, leaving Leeds space there. And I think what we're seeing this season is teams just unwilling to give Leeds space in behind the fullbacks in the, in the, in the wide areas. And so, yeah, with that caveat, I think, you know, Villa's, the the transitions against Villa were like a lot easier as well, weren't they? They were leaving us a lot of space in midfield. But, um, I think that's another question for another podcast. So let's move on to the second question I have. So this week, Marcel, Although Bielsa said in press conferences, quote, one path to follow is to go long and go for 50-50s. We're not going to do this. The other path, his path, is going from defence to attack, keeping the ball. How much evidence of this did you see last night, Darren? (laughs) I think this is a really, really difficult question because um, I still think that clearly Bielsa's intention is for us to build up as we've done at the most successful periods of of his spell. But I, I... genuinely believe that what's happening is that the players are getting on the pitch and and seeing that maybe you know perhaps that the the movement from midfield and the rotations aren't working as effectively as they once were and they don't have the options particularly from the fullback area to kind of move the ball into the midfield and build up that way and are just choosing instead of keeping the ball and recycling it as as we would have you know opportunities to do last night um, are choosing to go longer. I mean, if you look at the like in the first sixty seconds or first eighty seconds yesterday, we'd looked to ping the ball 
onto Dan James' head. And, you know, Dan James is about three foot six. There's absolutely no <laughs> way he's going to win win those balls. But, but but you know, we kind of... So I, I feel like that while while the, the will may be there um, from Bielsa and that his intention and his tactical plan is still for us to build up in the way that we have, that for, for whatever reason it, that... You know, and I, th- I think we've alluded to some of the reasons that 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 we're not able to to build up, and that that we haven't got the control of the ball in the midfield, that we haven't perhaps got the profile of player in the midfield area that we need. Because al- although, yet yeah, Bielsa's midfield eights have always kind of got involved in the front line and have kind of bombed on. I think that it's definitely also true that when we've got the correct pro- uh, mixture and profiles of player in the midfield, that they are pro- far more prepared to drop in to pick up the ball from the full-backs to kind of, you know, kind of try and support the build-up in that way. If you think about the times when Pablo played as an eight, he was always prepared to drop deep and to support build-up play in that way. Forshaw is always prepared to build-up play in that way. And at the moment, we just don't seem to have the players that are prepared to drop in. So therefore, the, the options that are available are knock the ball around the back five or to try and be a bit more direct and transitional. Um, and to try and or even use Bamford as a kind of hold-up, which we did a couple of times last night, but not particularly successfully. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it is a difficult difficult question to answer because whilst Bielsa is saying these things, there's actually not a huge amount of evidence to support it in terms of what we're seeing on the pitch. Yeah, interesting that you brought up the midfield situation because we had a few questions actually about the midfield, namely about the fact that Leeds don't have players in midfield a lot of the time. And I thought, oh, I did want to throw in maybe a listener question, but we I found three other questions that I thought were maybe um, more uh, apposite to discuss at the moment. But I think it's worth talking about because I think, as you've said, when we go forward, because we use a form of positional play, the whole idea is that you get your two eights into that forward line so that when you we get the ball into the wide area and you play into that corridor of uncertainty, you've got players attacking every one of the channels between the, the opposition defenders. Um, that's all well and good. Um, and and the, the reason why we struggle in defensive transition is the same reason why Manchester City struggle in defensive transition because they're doing the same thing. They're trying to get their players in dangerous positions and then you try and mitigate the consequences of that in in those defensive transitional moments. And that's why it's important to have someone like Calvin Phillips in your team because he's a really good defensive transitional player. Um, but I think the, the 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 problem is then is that so you've got to, there's two issues here. What what is the, what are the midfielders doing that actually helps us control the game? And I think one of those things is um, in possession, like in more patient possession, it's doing precisely what we talked about before, which is helping the the, the build-up in wide areas. So we've seen Mateus Klick can do that really well. Adam Forshaw is very good at that as well. It just helping the ball into those wide areas where the, the, the our players can then get the ball into those dangerous spaces. Um, so in some senses, I, I kind of feel as though people complain about the fact we have huge spaces in our midfield when I think that's a tactical decision and that's fine. But the issue for me is with, with the midfield personnel that we have is that we maybe don't have enough players who can actually help us control the ball in the wide areas to make those, to make those attacking choices worthwhile. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, when, when it works well, and, and again, I come back to when Pablo's played there or when Forshaw's played there, what they do really well is they drop into the half spaces in our half and support the build-up there. And at the moment, nobody's nobody's doing that. And, and maybe Click was doing it a couple of times last night. Maybe I'm being slightly unfair. But because we were playing effectively a 4-4-2 last night too, um, I suppose that made it even more challenging in a sense because because that's not really Calvin's game to get into that, that space and support that kind of build-up. He's always more likely to, to look to go more direct and, and to move the ball on more quickly or to recycle the ball out to the full-backs um, with, with slightly longer passes. So... Yeah, I, I agree. It's a it's it's a real it's a real challenge and a real quandary for for how we go forward from here. Because one of the advantages of our system is that as soon as we get the ball, we make the pitch enormous, don't we? we? We kind of really spread out wide and we spread up high and we really try and stretch the opposition. But the result of of losing the ball in those situations is dire. And at the moment, we are losing the ball in transition so often that we're we're just asking for trouble all the time. And I'd be kind of really an advocate for a much more patient approach. Um, and and maybe that involves putting you know because I think Shackleton can do it. I think he can do that kind of build up. So maybe it involves putting Shackleton in or somebody like that who can just give us that little bit more control. Whose decision making around when to bomb and when to pass and when to sit in is a bit better. I, I just don't know how we get out of it. We did have a question from Adam Michael Finney, which again is another question that didn't make the final cut, but I did want to talk about it. But he talks a little lot about recovery speed um, in terms of 
as you're talking about there, the, the ability to, to sort of track back in those moments where we are defending backwards. And I think the idea of playing Jamie Shackleton for me over someone like Stuart Dallas is, is I think, plausible given that, given that at the moment we are doing a lot of defensive transitional work. And I think I would just prefer to have players like like Shaq in the team who you know is 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 a very dynamic player who is going to not only get forward at pace and in, in, in exciting ways, but is also going to get back and cover that ground. Um, yeah, Adam Michael Finney was just comparing this team with Chelsea's best teams, the the Chilean and uh, Athletic Club teams, where um, he was saying that he he remembered that it just felt like, and, and we saw it in the Championship as well, didn't we? When when we would lose the ball and everyone would get back quickly, we just don't see that happening as much now. Yeah, there's that really famous clip, isn't there, of, of, of I think it was away at Wigan where we lose the ball on the edge of our box and there are seven or eight players, every single one of them absolutely determined to get into position to, to, to get the ball. And yeah, you're right, I, that, that, that exact clip came across my mind last night when, when I think Newcastle had an attacking transition and it wasn't through uh, St Maximin, it was somebody else, maybe Willock or somebody. Um, and it looked like, you know, the, the players were kind of getting back in pairs rather than kind of all all absolutely bombing back together so yeah I think I think there are questions to be asked there about why that's happening yeah and I think we've got a question later on that does address that so I'll leave that now one final thing just on Calvin Phillips thing in the midfield um what one thing I've started seeing particularly in the last couple of games is Phillips dropping out um so we we talk a lot about the Salida the exit um that they use in South American football the term that they use for the uh, sort of build up in 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 it from from the back um and one of the one of the famous uh, ideas about the, the salida is called uh, the salida la volpiana um which is a very specific uh, it references a um i can't remember where the coach is from but one of the south american coaches who is the guy who advocated the the center midfielder dropping in between the the, t- the center backs um in a back four and what we're seeing a lot actually at the moment is is phillips doing that but dropping into the full back areas particularly behind uh, junior so it, it looks as though that that we are trying well Bielsa is trying to think of ways that we can get eg junior f- further forward a lot more with with Phillips covering behind him as well but again that means that in those tr- transitional moments we don't even have Phillips in in the center he has to run into the central space to sort of cover that area as well so that I can see why people are concerned about about those the, the central areas but I do think that that's a tactical decision and Bielsa's argument will be well once we start controlling the ball a little bit more we won't have to worry about those so much so yeah I think one of the problems just the last thing on this one of the problems with this playing something looks more like a 4-4-2 as well as it does tend to suck Phillips out of even when we're going forward it tends to suck Phillips further forward than we would ideally like which even again creates creates more space in that area so question number three I posted a Twitter thread on Thursday saying that I thought the the 4-4-2 against teams who aren't going to be building up from the back is probably the best system for Rodrigo to play in. Um, do you think the game bore this out? Yeah, I do. I, I thought Rodrigo was good last night. Um, I thought he, is, he was able to kind of use you know, the skills that we know he's got, which is that he's, his intelligent use of space, his kind of surprise. He, he uses the ball in quite surprising ways sometimes, um, which which I think is really good for, you know, taking the opposition out of their stride. I think the, the kind of downside of that is that sometimes it's, it's to surprise our players too and, and, and doesn't really make anything of it. But I thought, I thought his movement was good. I thought his use of the ball was um, quite intelligent. I thought he, he looked creative. I thought he looked lively around their box. Um, I thought he was quite unlucky with a couple of situations. Um, yeah, I, th- I think I agree. I think that if we're going to see, you know, a, a, an idealised use of of Rodrigo, it would be in a system where he's playing as the second striker, where his defensive responsibilities are quite limited, um, and where where he's able to kind of exploit exploit the spaces that are available to him. Yeah, and just looking at FB Ref, he picked up zero point eight expected assists yesterday um i think he was an important attacking player and let, let's be clear like we've when we have been critical of rodrigo in in the, on this channel and we've all, but we've always been critical of him in the context of the the impact that he has on the press and i think in a game like yesterday's game um that that sort of those sort of pressing moments aren't quite so important. Um, like we said, Newcastle aren't trying to build up from the back. Largely, their goal kicks are going long. It doesn't really matter so much what he's doing defensively. Um, and as we've said, um, he can sort of drop from that second striker position 
in front of the two eights and almost play as a uh, as as a as well as a second striker and find that space and, and play players in from there. So I do think that this is the ideal system for him against the ideal team in that system. So um, good to see him you know, putting up good numbers in, in that position. I guess the, 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 the wider question is, as we always suggest, like what about the other games where we struggle to get him in the in the team and the system doesn't really work work around him? But um, we've talked about that at length, so I'm sure we don't need to cover that uh, again. Do you have any final thoughts on Rodrigo? Yeah, just one final thing really is that in, in the games where he's played in, in the midfield so far this season, when he has dropped into the midfield area with his back to the opposition goal, um, he has struggled in in terms of supporting the build up, and and because he wasn't required to do that yesterday, it it just meant that he could quite often get the ball in areas where where he was more comfortable, where he's facing their goal, and where he could see the movements going off around him that he could try pick out. Yeah, totally agree. Right, question four. There was a lot of dissatisfaction with Junior amongst some of the fans last night. Do you think that's fair on the basis of his performance? Uh, not at all. I, I thought I'm not going to say that anybody had a great game last night because I just don't think that's true. But at the same time, I thought I thought Junior was was decent. Um, he, I think he was largely marking Almiron, if I'm right in thinking that. And and he he seemed to manage that well. I think a lot of the criticism is coming from a perceived idea that he should be the one backing up Liam Cooper when St Maximum is running at him. And that just, I think, shows a fundamental misunderstanding of our marking system. Um, the, the left fullback who's got his own marking assignment isn't going to, to drop himself spare to, to support um, Cooper in that situation. It's going to be the other centre-back. And by and large, we saw that happening. So I thought, I thought defensively, he's, he's, he's never going to be amazing defensively. Is he? There are always going to be times when he gets bypassed a bit too easily when, or when he tries to jump in too quickly and gets taken out of the game. Um, but I think we knew that about him before he came. So I don't think anything that I've seen of him defensively has been a massive surprise to me. Um, I think that in terms of his ability to support our build-up, he's a massive upgrade on Alioski. Um, and and, and I, I think there is a bit of um, revisionism going on about Alioski at the moment because we look like we're, we're struggling that, that, that suddenly, you know, he's kind of this world beat a left back when we all know that isn't the case. I think I think Firpo looks after the ball much better than Alioski did. I think he makes some really smart runs, um, late inverted runs into the box, which at the moment we're not picking out. Um, but I think over the course of the season, we will pick that those out more regularly and he, he might come up with a couple of assists or goals from that situation. Um, I would like to see situations whereby he can um, overlap and bomb on that way a little bit more. But I think I think Dan James, by and large, stayed very high and wide yesterday. So it wasn't really going to create a situation where Furpo could do that. Um, but I, I thought I thought he was all right. I thought he was I thought he was fine yesterday. What do you think, John? It's tough to judge players individually because they are playing in systems. And I think it's it's fair to say to, to Junior that, that the assumption is being made that because Junior is maybe looking a little bit underwhelming at times compared to what you might expect for a you know, 15 million euro player from Barcelona to be, um, there's this sort of expectation that he should be carrying the level of the team up, perhaps. Um, and I guess I would re- try to deflate that and invert it and say... The team aren't playing well at the moment, and so it means that we're not seeing the sorts of things that we think Junior can do well um, as much. I do share the concern that people have about him, like not getting forward as much, because it does. He does seem quite circumspect in in some situations to go forward. Now we know that that's because actually, you know, tracking back, he can he can often look a little bit shaky. So I think he he is he's nervous going forward because he realizes that the you know, the correlation of that is that he will have to come back. Um, but yesterday I thought the, the chance before half time, which was, I think, maybe the best chance that, that we created last night, um, where he ran into space in the wing, clipped the ball into Rafinha at the back post and Rafinha was just too slow getting getting it going. I, I think I feel like that was potentially like one of our most threatening moments in the game and that was because of him. Um, and that was because he played that that ball in. I don't think you would probably get that from from Alioski. Um, Alioski was great at bombing on. He was he had a lot of energy, um, but he was playing for our team at a point when you know everything was going well for the team. And I think it's it's easy to forget some of those games where we looked awful in possession because because Alioski was just losing the ball left, right, centre, or you know volleying passes back to Melier at about sixty feet in the air. Um, back passes which wasn't yeah you know um wasn't the most 
ideal use of of, of the possession for me, but uh, maybe I'm old fashioned. Um, so I think this is one of those things where Junior is um, he does have an upside, but it does seem as though he's balancing that upside with with a level of circumspectness about getting forward and being a little bit more careful um, out of possession. And I think so much of that comes down to the fact that we are not as good in possession this season um whether or not again like what comes first the chicken or the egg are we looking less good in possession because he's not getting into the right positions i, I think that's maybe a little bit of an unfair reading of it um but i i also do feel as though we're not doing the best to get the best out of him as a team uh, and i think that's the best way of judging him on that yeah agreed Right, one final question, um, and another a player. Unfortunately, there wasn't a huge amount of tactical stuff to get our teeth into, so I've, I've had to talk a little bit about individuals, which I, I don't really like doing necessarily. But um, it's And it's perhaps unfair to judge Dan James after so few minutes and the context that he made his debut in a team down to 10 men against Liverpool. But what have you made of Dan James at this point? Mm. <laughs> I find it difficult to draw any sort of conclusion about him at this point, really. Um, I suppose framing the question in in terms of is he doing what he's been asked to do would be reasonable um and i don't think yesterday was the sort of game that was ever going to suit him because i think he's he's only going to really thrive in games where there's a lot of space in behind that he can run into um and there just wasn't really that last night and or on the occasions we were we didn't have good enough control of the ball to to put him in there um i i I don't think he's ever going to be somebody who's going to unpick a defence with an individual piece of skill or a bit of flair or a, a, you know something like that where he creates a bit of space for himself. It's all going to be about being explosive. I think I think he's got a reasonably good first touch and he's able to lay the ball off quickly and then make a good run. And I think that that might be sometimes where we, where we might see his upside. But again, I don't think we really saw that saw that happening yesterday. I, I thought he just really, really struggled to get into the game in any meaningful way at all. A lot of the balls that we're looking for him were high balls that had been pinged to him from our kind of back third or from from the middle third. And I just don't see how he's really going to have any meaningful influence if if that's how we're going to use him. Um, yeah, he should have had a penalty, but you know, we're talking about referees is really boring, so I'm not really going to get into that. I think he should have had a penalty, but whatever. Um, but beyond that, I just thought he was a non-factor in the game both in an attacking and a defensive point of view, to be honest. Yeah, I'm just looking at, again, FB ref, and he had 11 yards of progressive carries and 22 yards of progressive passing. That's not good enough for a winger in our system. Um, and, y- you know, the, the the argument has been and will be that Bielsa sees something in him that he likes and therefore we just have to wait and see where that comes, like what that when that comes, what that looks like. But like you said, it, it seems to me the only upside you're going to get from him is he's not a good dribbler. He's a good. He's good at carrying the ball at speed, like you said. So you're looking at getting him in behind and and, and scoring goals that way. But beyond that, like, <laughs> there's a lot more scope to the the wide players that we have in our system than that. And and I guess I'm not seeing any any clear examples that he's going to be good at that at this point. So um, that's for me. That's the worrying thing about about Dan James is that if you if you if you have a player who's very specific. Uh, and is very specifically good at one thing. The worry is that if they're if they're not being able to do that, then what what upside are you getting from them? And that's kind of where I'm kind of where I'm at with him at the moment. Yeah, I, I agree. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey. 
So enough of my interrogation of you, Darren. Now time for you to, I guess, interrogate me back. So this is the the bring a topic section. So what topic did you want to bring to the discussion today? Yeah, obviously Alan St. Maximin was their, really their only, only attacking threat. They they didn't look like they were going to create chances at all unless he was involved heavily in the play. And I saw a lot of people really heavily criticising Liam Cooper um, for his performance yesterday. But I just thought it'd be interesting to ask whether you thought we managed him, whether we managed St Maximum well, poorly or indifferently. So what, what are your thoughts? Far be it for me to, to jump into the, the FB ref again, but just looking at his underlying numbers, uh, 0.2 XG, 0.3 expected assists. I'd say that's managing a player pretty well, um, managing a uh, the opposition's best player well as well. Um, we know what Alan Maximum is good at um, and it is running with the ball and no surprises that the goal he scored came from, you know, sending a, a few of our players for donuts um, and just sort of moving the ball around and creating space and getting the shot away. Um, in that situation, like, yeah, okay, look, look, it wasn't the, it wasn't the best chance ever I didn't think insofar as like if you look at his his numbers for um for expected goals he had five shots and and put up as I've said 0.2 xg like he's not creating anything near big chances um you're going to allow a player of his quality to create an outside chance and a player of his quality will take an outside chance every now and again so I think the fact that he scored shouldn't really come into it uh, in in that respect and yeah I felt I felt as though the, the you know largely Cooper Cooper covered him pretty well, um, and I said that as someone who's nervous about Liam Cooper when players of Maximan Sen Maximan's ability are running at him. So I felt I felt pretty comfortable with with the the defensive job that was done. Um, I, I suppose there was that big chance that came at the back post. I think was it Joe Willock who had it, um, where um, the the ball was was laid off by Sen Maximan just gaining wide. Um, again, you know. He, he gets around the side of of Cooper, but like you're you're, you're we're, again we're talking about situations where a player of that quality is going to cause problems, and the question isn't can you completely stop this guy from having chances uh, or creating chances? Can you make yourself or make those things as difficult for him to do as possible uh, and try and uh, and try and stifle them in that way? And I think largely Phillips did that. Uh, sorry, Cooper did that as well. So, uh, what about you? What did you What did you make of it? Yeah, broadly, I broadly agree. I thought I thought Cooper managed him more effectively in the second half than he did in the first. I thought there were a couple of moments in the first half where he just kind of got really sucked in and and made um, St. Maximin's decision uh, for him by yeah, kind of showing him the space to run into. And I thought that was a bit of a problem. But I think, but I do think that even in the second half, the 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 good defensive tackles that Cooper did were tackles that were right on the edge, where if he misses them you know, that Cooper's in, but that is just a hallmark of our defensive style, isn't it? Everything that we do is right on the edge anyway. So I don't I don't necessarily see that as a criticism of Cooper. It's just it's just the, the structures in which he is expected to perform. I thought by and large, um Aileen did back Cooper up pretty well in terms of managing St. Maximin and I thought there were a couple of times when when that worked really well. I I just think in a game against a player who's entire game is is based in those individual moments where he's he's going to try run at people and beat them that they, they are the most difficult players to manage uh out of out of any any individual so i think that yeah i thought overall we did we did okay i mean the moments are terrifying it's terrifying when he picks up the ball and runs at your back four and it looks bad um when he's doing that but actually the outcome was more often than not reasonable reasonably good because because I thought Cooper defended him pretty well. With Newcastle, their their game plan going forward is going to be try and find him on the ball, and I think in those circumstances, it's not too bad when you've when you've got a, a, a man marker and a player over to sort of cover a player like that. I think I, I kind of feel not too worried about it. I think we've seen it in other players as well. Maybe uh, Alexander Mitrovic um, when we were in the Championship played against them. I felt similarly with that. You know, here's a player who the, the majority of their game plan. Uh, revolves around, but we can effectively have two players covering him the whole time, uh, and, and I feel as though I, I generally feel quite safe in those situations. Obviously, as I've said, it's not about completely stopping. I mean, ideally, it is about completely stopping them, but I don't think you beat yourself up when you allow them a few chances. It's just about mitigating those chances and, and trying to make the, the them as low quality as possible. And I think largely that happened yesterday.
enough of us let's move over to the listener questions so yeah hundreds of questions actually uh, a lot of people wanted to talk last night after the game which i suppose is a good sign but um let's let's just crack through through these questions so the first question um is from jamie who says people always say a team's been figured out when they have a poor second season but do you think our performances are more down to the way opposition teams have set up against us or our own inadequacies or a bit of both so what do you make of that darren yeah a bit of both um i would say that it's more to do with as as we've alluded to many times on this podcast that the way that opposition and just not leaving space in leaving space for our wingers to 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 make hay in and i think that is a big factor and that's been a big factor in all of the games um i do think that that the other four teams i mean in, in fact let's just take Man United and Liverpool at the equation for a second because I, I just don't think it's really relevant to talk about those two teams here. But but I think I think both Everton and Burnley um, were much more proactive in in terms of the way that they tried to defend us than Newcastle were. And I think in both of those games, their tactical game plans were probably the defining factor and has been unable to create a lot of good chances. Um, yesterday, I think was different. As I've already said, I think I think we. A, we made quite a few chances and also we did let a lot of opportunities, particularly late in the game, go to make better ones than, than we did. So I think I think that specifically yesterday, it was a combination of them yeah, leaving their fullbacks deep, but also our inability to, to, to make, the, make the best of the situations that we put ourselves in. Yeah, I totally agree with you here. I think, again... I think it's it's important to try and de-narrate this because the narrative is going to be that, oh, you know, we're playing badly at the moment. Therefore, if we don't get a result, then it's been a bad performance. I actually think yesterday's performance was fine. I think we did enough to win. Um, I think, yes, there are frustrations with some of the ways that we're playing. But, like, you know, a win is a win. And I think there's enough teams in the division that if you can pull off those wins... Um, in that manner, as we did yesterday, that you, you you're going to be fine in the long run. There's, you know, we 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 had a, an equally scrappy win at St James's Park last time round. Was it the other? Was that the Elland Road? I can't remember which word. It was it was the St James's Park, wasn't it? Yeah. Where we were quite lucky. I think we put up 0.5 xg and we ended up scoring two goals. Um, and we spent. I think a, a big portion of the end of that game is sort of digging in a little bit, holding on to our lead. Um, so the idea that we sort of the, the idea that we sort of played free 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 flowing football last season the whole time, I just don't think is right. And uh, yes, okay, the the worry is that we're not getting results where we maybe deserve to get results. That's definitely an issue. Um, but you know, I, I am a firm believer that, that you know the form is something which happens in sort of smaller blocks than a whole season. So yeah, okay, maybe our, se- our finishing is going to be fairly poor uh, at, at times, but I, I also think that we'll have times when we're our, our finishing is good. And let's face it, like we we were we were quite clinical with our finishing against uh, Everton and Burnley um, from the chances that we created. I thought so. Yeah, it goes both ways. Um, but I do think this was a good performance. I, I I don't like games like this because they're too messy. They are going to be open. They are going to be scrappy games. And it does come down to like how good is your finishing in those in those games. We created decent chances. I don't think we created any like really good chances. Um, insofar as like you know getting in behind their defence, having a one on one with the keeper or anything like that. But we we definitely we created according to Statsbomb. 2.2 xg so to to only score one goal from that you might feel uh, a little bit aggrieved but um I, I do think that we are figured out in the sense that managers who are tactically astute will will know how to make things difficult for us we saw it with graham potter last season we've seen it with i think both sean dyche and rafa benitez this season and that's kind of the worry is that like if you're okay we're, we're, if, if you're getting figured out by the teams in the mid table you're maybe dropping a few points there and then if you're not taking your chances against like relegation battlers you're not getting points there either that's that's kind of the worry here but I I kind of feel as though we've got enough to stay up and and a lot of the the pain that we're experiencing as fans right now is having to reassess the fact that we're not actually as good as we thought we were last season um and that's a that's a difficult process to go through uh but yeah, I think we'll. I think we'll stay up. I still think we'll we'll stay up. I know that there's a lot of people talking about Sheffield United and second season syndrome. I, I do think we've got enough to to actually turn some of these teams over with a bit of luck. And um, yeah, I'm sure that we'll 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 start seeing that. I agree for what it's worth. So, second question is from Mark Forsyth, who says. 
do the stats show any differences in our passing completion this season compared to the same period last season? We just seem to be way more sloppy than we were. And um, I've included this one because we've actually been asked about pass completion quite a bit. So I thought it would be important to just have a have a conversation about that. But yeah, I just wondered what you, what, what you made of, of this question in terms of the pass completion rates. My uh, impression, um, and when we looked at pass completion rates last season, is that they were they were not as high as we probably anticipated that they would be anyway. Because I think our style intrinsically lends itself to a high number of turnovers per game. Um, the thing the thing which sways people opinions about that is whether we make good chances and whether we score. Um, and and in the moments where it doesn't work, we give the ball away a lot. And even when it so say say if, if an ex, in a game you make five or six good chances in the game and score two of those, there are still going to be dozens of times when we've given the ball away sloppily, trying to either overstretch ourselves or trying to speculate a pass or something like that. So I haven't actually looked at the figures for this, John, but I can just see you typing into FB Ref now. I always love things like this because inevitably they they like blow people's minds. But yeah, our passing completion rate is higher this season than it was last season. Um, now, obviously, like it's much smaller sample size this season, so you're going to expect that, I think. But um, our our average pass completion rate last season was 79.8% and we're up at 82.2% this season. Um, I think there's a number of reasons for this. One of them is that I guess if you're if you if you consider football in terms of transitions, so um, uh, or possession like moments so you have the ball and then you turn turnovers is probably the best way of thinking about it so um, let's say that Leeds are putting up the same amount of turnovers in a game as usual then their, plas- their pass completion rate is going to be the same right but that doesn't necessarily mean that the volume of passes is the same so you could have a team like Leeds maybe doing huge amounts of passing at the back because they can't work it forward in which case they're going to have decent pass completion numbers um, and then Last season, say we say our build-up was really good that we got into those wide areas. We then have players in attacking positions who play creative and dangerous ch- chances that just don't find targets, and then your your pass completion rate drops. So I think there's a sense in which the, there's a reality there that leads can get their players into into more dangerous areas when they're when they're building up well and that will mean that their pass completion rate is probably a little bit lower because they are able to make those more dangerous passes so the the problem is is that people see us losing the ball a lot in in poor positions and that's definitely happening but if you compare that with last season the balls were being lost in much more promising dangerous positions so you're losing the same amount of passes or or slightly slightly fewer but that's because the, the reason it feels so bad is because you're you're only focusing on the position of those where those passes are being lost so Luke Ayling has been losing the ball in horrendous positions this season um but like in in previous seasons, that ball would have progressed all the way down the season down the pitch, and Rafinha would have lost it, right? So your pass completion rate is exactly the same, give or take, because you're still losing that 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 pass that that pass further down the field, and it, it just shows up differently in the data. So yeah, and when we've had settled possession this season so far, it's been with the centre backs knocking it back and forth to each other and knocking it to Melier, and so if you if you look at Pascal Strauch or Liam Cooper's pass completion rate for short or medium range passes for the season so far it'll be close to 100% I'm certain um, and in fact I looked at Pascal's last week for the article we did and it was it was, it was was about 100% on all of those maybe dropping to 95 occasionally um, so yeah I th- I, and, and actually I, th- I do think that yesterday once we'd scored there might have been an argument for us actually doing some more of that kind of easy possession at the back to try and draw Newcastle out a little bit instead of just kind of going for the jugular every single time we get the ball um, because I, I think I think that we would therefore have been able to exploit spaces that they were definitely leaving much more easily so I think I think there's a kind of decision making element as a team there in terms of when, when we choose to kind of bomb forward and when, when we choose to kind of take the sting out of the game if you like and, and we just don't seem able to manage the game in that way at the moment at all Final question from Jackie Buckets he says, I feel like a conspiracy theorist, but are we reaching the end of the cycle with Bielsa? <laughs> so we've been pretty positive in this episode, I think, but I do think this is an interesting question and one that does need addressing in some sense. But So what's your take on this, Dan? My sense is that some of the players are probably near the end of their cycle and that the, the, the answer to this question will come in Bielsa's decision as to whether he's prepared to renew the squad or not over a period of time um, because if he's not prepared to do that and we continue playing players who uh, who've you know worked wonders for us who I'm very affectionate about who who've 
you know, kind of got, you know, the promotion team and, and all the rest of it. I'm not, I don't want this to sound like I'm digging players out and saying, uh, kind of slagging them off, but, but it seems clear to me that some of the players that we've got in our squad are probably nearer to the end of their cycle than, than others and that we need to renew the squad and improve the quality of the squad in certain areas of the team. And if Bielsa isn't prepared to do that, then he's going to naturally bring about the end of his own cycle. Um, and I suppose what I would say is that the indicators for that so far this season, and it is only five games, it is a small sample size, but the indicators don't look good uh, right now at this moment time um so i'm not kind of saying yeah we're definitely end, at the end of bielsa's cycle because i think that would be a ridiculous thing to say after five games but i do think there are some worrying indicators totally agree that that this is all about the squad cycle and i think the idea that you can play three seasons of uh, of bielsa ball and then not suffer the effects of that i think is naive and I think that's why so many of us were frustrated about the the window that we just had. Uh, not least because I think even if even if you're not at that point in the cycle, it doesn't look like pretty particularly good planning for for the future. But I think when you add into that the that equation, the fact that playing intense football for that amount of time through a pandemic and through various scheduling issues that we've had as a result of that, it's pretty pretty mad. Um, and I think we're starting to see that with with Luke Ayling potentially with Stuart Dallas. Um, again, we know that they've both had sort of poor runs of form, but with, with Ailing, it's it does seem to be a little bit more uh, endemic than, 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 than that. And um, I guess we wait and see this space. But the, the idea for me is that... I actually, actually think that my, my hot take on Bielsa is that the reason why we've never really seen Bielsa burn out is because we've never actually seen him at a club long enough to actually experience what's that what that looks like and I think the burnout to a certain extent is inevitable with any club and with any manager like they talk about cycles of three years um, and I but I just think that's exacerbated by the intensity that Bielsa wants his his team to play at and then when you add into the fact that when it comes to recruitment he seems to have an inability to realize that you can't just play the same team forever and I think that all just sort of adds to a bit of a cocktail of 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 uh, yeah chaos and, and and I guess lack of planning so I suspect we may be coming to the end of certainly this squad cycle um, and I think what's going to be fascinating about this season is we've never had the chance to see Bielsa run a squad into the ground before because he's only been at a place for two seasons before this um, and so we may be able to see that in real time but that's a very pessimistic view and hopefully it won't come to that and like I say I think we're good enough to to be able to stay up but I think next summer is going to be a nightmare to, to rebuild this squad. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, like you mentioned, Luke Aylin and and um, and Stuart Dallas already as players who who maybe you know are, are the ones coming to the end of their cycle. And obviously, Matthias Click has has had a, a really difficult season last season, and we're hoping that he can renew and get back to where he where he was at some point. But he's actually the oldest player out of that group, um, and it's going to be interesting to see just how much he can contribute over the course of the season. I hope it's a lot, obviously, but. Um, yeah, I think we 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 are in desperate need of of me, of kind of making the decision or making the plans for how we move those players out of the squad um, over the next couple of years for sure, over the next year perhaps. Do 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 Star Trek Bamford. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that time of the show when we talk about stats and get to sing the Patrick Bamford song, but with. The name replaced again tricky tricky game to sort of get anything out of in terms of, uh, of the numbers I thought it'd be good to talk about XG versus post shot XG um, which is something we've talked about before now I think by now most of our listeners will know what expected goals is expected goals is a way of measuring the quality of chances um, as you create them so rather than just saying we had 10 chances you start looking at how likely those chances were to go in and then you can build a better picture perhaps of of how uh, likely a team were to score. Now, post-shot XG does exactly what it says on the tin insofar as it looks at the expected, the likely um, the likelihood of scoring after the shot has been taken. So um, XG looks at that before the sh- it doesn't really take the shot into account at all. It just looks at what the location and various other variables and, and makes the assessment based on that. But post-shot XG now takes into account the trajectory and the speed uh, of the ball um, towards the goal. So uh, if you take a shot 
with a low expected goal score and you leather it towards the top corner. So if you have a, I guess the the, the um, Rafinha goal <laughs> yesterday is actually quite a good example of this. <laughs> that that's a very low likelihood of going in because he basically crossed the ball towards Rodrigo. Um, so you look at that and the the xG for that would be very low. Um, but I think if you looked at the post shot xG, so once you once the ball's left his foot, you can see that it is heading towards the goal. It's obviously a slow ball and the keeper would usually save it. So I don't think that you would necessarily raise the the, the quality of that would raise the quality of the chance, but obviously if it's going straight towards the keeper, it's even less likely to go in. So the post shot xG is basically just a way of showing that um that you raise the the likelihood of scoring by taking a good shot. Um, so if your finishing is good, your your post shot xG will be good. So yesterday, uh, Statsbomb had the xG down as one point three to Newcastle to two point two to to Leeds. Um, I'd done a thread on the Twitter um, channel just looking at at some of the chances and, and assessing this. So do head over there because the Opta figures were a little bit lower um, for this one. Um, but we'll, we we usually take. Uh, Statsbomb was the market leader on on uh, in terms of their model and the values that they put out. So um, that's the 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 xG. The post shot xG though per Statsbomb was one point five to one point five, uh, which which obviously looks a lot more equal than one point three to two point two. Now the way that you read that is that Newcastle slightly uh, increased the quality of their chances by shooting, whereas Leeds reduce the quality of the chance of their chances by shooting quite a bit uh by what is it 0.7 xg so nearly a full goal we were we were less likely to score by a full goal after shooting so i'm going to just put a caveat here about the stats bomb model um because the stats bomb model doesn't take into account keeper positioning i believe so um the the argument that they would have is it's a good way of looking at how well a keeper is doing um, because it just sort of assumes the keeper's in the middle and and is is going to try and save shots um, with that in mind. So the the you shouldn't read too much into a post shot xg um, uh, uh, model from 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 stats bomb uh, from the point of view of the people taking the shots. But in general, I think the the idea is that if you're taking shots that are heading quickly towards the top corners or bottom corners wide of the keeper you're you're more likely to score than than if you hit it straight at it so i do think there's something indicative here that leeds weren't making the most of their chances so darren what do you make of this and and how much of this game yesterday was just about finishing and and the fact that leeds didn't seem able to do it as well as newcastle were yeah i think i think there's definitely some truth in that um I don't think Newcastle's finishing was extraordinary either. I think I think the kind of I think most of the increase in their XG when it goes to post shot is from probably from that one chance where um St Maximin hit a, a ball really hard and low towards our right hand corner and Melier got across and saved it. I think that would be the, probably the only one where I would imagine that that increased uh, their XG. I think from our point of view you can you can think of the uh Junior Furpo chance. You can think of the the Rodrigo chance where Dan James laid the ball back to him and he tried to roll it into the bottom corner, which I think was a really, really good chance, and I would have expected him to take it. Um, but I think, I think, yeah, overall, you know, the kind of few, the few biggest chances that we got, we really didn't um, make the most of. And, and and also, I think the, I think we've kind of established this morning that some of the that two of Bamford's chances, or certainly Bamford's XG, has been overrated um, across the game because I think I think all the chances that he got were actually much more difficult than than the kind of narrative is is saying. So it it does seem that that we missed some some good chances and and maybe didn't have the composure or the quality to to take take the ones. I think I think it tells it tells the story of what I saw. I think. Yeah. No. Agreed. I think the Bamford header. In inverted commas at 19 minutes is probably where a lot of that that comes from. So the big question is how good a chance was that? And I think the reason why it's interesting that the post shot xG um, from Statsbomb is much more similar to the Opta numbers that we're seeing from various um, outlets, which had it I think it more like 1.3 to Newcastle to 1.5 to Leeds. And I think a lot of it hinges on how much um, value is being given to that Patrick Bamford header. Now on the one hand, the Opta data is obviously wrong because if you look you can look on the shot map for understat and you can look on the shot map for info goal and it's clear that they've just mispositioned where the header was taken um but at the same time i think when you look at the stats bomb um value that they've probably put on that we don't have the individual value for that 
chance. But it looks like a lot of the value is coming from that chance. And I think that's because he's, he's a header like right on the edge of the six-yard box um, and it's fairly uncontested. But if you actually watch the clip, Bamford misreads the flight of the ball and ends up facing the wrong way and, and sort of can only manage to get his back on it. And I think that's where a lot of that post-shot XG gap is probably coming from as well. I think that the the fact that he had like a, a what what I think their model would see as a good chance, but then just sort of dollied it towards the keeper very slowly, will mean that the the post shot xg was much lower. And so it's interesting for me that 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 chance has been um, basically seems to be a lot of what's da- been downgraded. I mean, I think our finishing elsewhere was was poor, as you've said. There are other examples of that, um, but I think some of it comes down to that as well. We're in need of positives, aren't we? So let's just quickly go through the positives. It will come as no surprise to anyone that Darren has selected Melier, um, as he does every week. I don't think he even bothers changing the running order. He just keeps it on there. But have you got any other positives for us, Darren? Well, as I said in the running order, John, if someone else had played well, I wouldn't have to choose Melier every week, would I? <laughs> I'm going to choose Rodrigo, actually, because cause I, I do think he... I do think he did really well. I think it was a game that suited him. And, and sometimes when we've had games that we thought were going to suit him, he hasn't played well in them. And I think, I think, he, did, I think he did play well yesterday. And I also do think that it's really, his influence on the goal has, has not been mentioned really um, because his run across the box and his decision to leave the ball um, is what allows the ball to go into the far corner past the keeper. I think if he, you know, he, he may have got a touch on it and it may have gone in and it may not. But I think he, I think he really wrong foots the keeper by making that run, and I think, I think it's really important to mention that. So I really hope that we have more games where we can play with two up front, so that he can, he can look good again. Um, so yeah, Rodrigo did well. I'm just going to add that we are creating chances against bad teams, which I think we went into this game suggesting that, you know, it would be fine if we had... I guess people came into this game saying it would be fine if we had a good performance and lost or didn't win. And I feel as though this was largely a good performance apart from finishing. I don't know whether or not you can necessarily complain about about a result if we have created the chances that we needed to win. Like, I do think that there are issues, and I'm not trying to completely exonerate everything that happened yesterday, but I do think there's a there's an alternative universe where, well, I mean, clearly there is, because XG is basically a probabilistic model. So if you played that game an infinite number of times, Leeds would score 2.2 goals and Newcastle would only score 1.3, which means that in the majority of the time, Leeds would be winning that game on the basis of the chances that they created. So... I will say that I do think I do think it was a positive performance in in some respects. Maybe not some of the stuff that we wanted to see, but as I've tried to make clear in this podcast, I think Newcastle aren't the sort of team that we should be trying to develop the the, the sort of play style that we want to see as well. Right, let's just do quickly uh, a bit of a game preview for the next game. Um, I should say before this, we are playing Fulham on Tuesday, I believe. Um, And I have spoken to Jack J. Collins of Fulhamish and Ranks FC. Um, I've spent 30 minutes just chatting to him just about where Fulham are at this season, because obviously we don't know much about them um, as as per previous seasons. Um, And that will be coming out on this feed. So you will be able to listen to that on Monday morning. Uh, So that will give you something to to look forward to. but we're going to preview the the West Ham game, which is the which is next weekend. Um, West Ham so far have won two, drawn two, um, some interesting results in there because um, yeah they've beaten Newcastle and Leicester, which is maybe a bit of an outlier. But then they've drawn with Crystal Palace and Southampton, which I don't think they uh, many people would have expected as well. So um, there is also the caveat that they're playing Europa League at the moment as well. So I wonder whether or not that plays into it somewhat. They uh, they did beat. Dinamo Zagreb uh, 2-0 in in the midweek so uh, the, that, there's that to take into account as well so they have got a fixture pile up a bit um, given that they've gone straight from Europa League into the, the Carabao Cup as well uh, I think they're playing Manchester United this weekend and they're also playing Manchester United in the Carabao Cup so two toughish fixtures there for them as well so uh, my question to kick things off just in terms of preview is that West Ham obviously one of the few teams to beat us twice last season and it feels as though they were perhaps the beneficiaries of some of the weirdnesses of last season. Um, So, you know, they're a solid team who creates three set pieces, um, which you're going to talk about a little bit, I think, Darren. But I'm interested in like your assessment of where they're at. Do we expect them to do as well this season or or did they get away with with just sort of being a very solid side who, who create three set pieces? But how much do you think that that is actually influencing our view of, of where they're at? And do you think that changes how we might view them this season? 
I think with a reasonable playing staff, which which Moyes has got down there, um, and and a playing staff that's going to suit his style, I think they'll always achieve a kind of reasonable baseline performance. Um, between which sits somewhere between, you know, I'm just going to use the table as 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 the indicator, really, somewhere between like eleventh and. I don't know six or something. They're always going to be in in that range, and and I, I really don't expect much variance from that. I expect them to be broadly similar to to where they were last season, and they'll, you know, and they'll they'll um they'll defend as effectively as they they did last year. They'll create the same sort of chances they made last year, and whether they go in or not will be the will will be the thing which decides where they finish. Um, so I, I don't expect a tremendous amount of variance in terms of playing style or in terms of the number of chances they create or in terms of how they create those chances. Um, so, I, yeah, that's kind of my reading of them, John. I don't know what you think. Yeah, no, for sure. I think I, I think I agree with that. I think that you talked about there them finishing between 11th and 6th, and I think you said no variance, but I actually think like the variance is is that they'll hit sort of a baseline where they'll probably be like around the eighth, seventh, eighth best team in the in the division, and they'll variance up and down depending on like you said the finishing whether or not that goes in. Just looking at the way that they set up, they've they've played in four two three one all season this season. That's what they did most of last season as well with their with their their double pivots of uh, Declan Rice and Thomas Suchek, uh, both of whom we've we've come to know what to expect. Obviously, a very sort of defensive um, uh, attitude that that, that that they sort of sit deep. They allow themselves to have a. a I, I guess the the possibility of scoring a goal from a set piece and and defending that lead, four two three one I think is a structure that suits us. We know that against four two three one we can play four one four one, which is I think our best our best system. So I think for you, Darren, this then just comes down to the question of like set pieces, right? Well, yeah, the question that I've got, and I'm sure it won't be any surprise to anybody, is how do we construct a defence that can manage their set pieces given that they scored from four against us last season, albeit one of them was a penalty? Um, yeah, they, they. we always say, you know, our our old friend, the set piece narrative might, might come back in uh, next week, but we always say, or I always say, that that when we come up against teams who've got great delivery from set pieces or good movement or both then we're really going to struggle and I think West Ham demonstrated last season that they, that they did have those but you add into that that we don't have Pascal Strauch or Llorente or Koch um, or Ailing available to us next week and I think we're, we're looking very 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 thin on the ground for players who can manage West Ham's aerial set piece threat with really only Liam Cooper potentially uh, Charlie Cresswell if he's brought in um, I think Phillips is reasonable in the air for his size, but his size is, is is a limiting factor. Obviously, we'll we'll stick Bamford on the front post and Rafinha not far away from him to to try and generate those breaks. But I suspect that that very much there's going to be chan- they're going to create chances from set pieces next week, and and it'll be down to whether whether we get lucky or not um, as to whether we concede from them. We will be talking at length about West Ham if I can find someone who wants to talk to me about West Ham in the next few days uh, but that will be up on our Patreon we'll have a full preview of that of that game as I've mentioned the Fulham preview will be out on Monday on the free to air channel so if you're listening to this podcast uh, on the free to air channel you will be able to, to get hold of that but this brings us to the end of the podcast I think we've mentioned the Patreon a few times if you want to sign up to that it's www.patreon.com forward slash all stats aren't we if you do sign up it's very cheap you can get all of our audio content for about £2.50 a month that will get you all of the preview shows that we do it will also get you bonus podcasts as well and it will also give you access to all of the audio content that we have up there which is a lot believe me so all there is for me to do is say thank you Darren it's been great just having a a chat with you this morning yeah I really enjoyed that John thanks good and we'll see you all next week Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.